On the Soul and the Resurrection by St. Gregory of Nyssa Part 12 But the difference between the virtuous life and the life full of vice, led at the present time, will be illustrated in this way. Viz, in the quicker or tardier participation of each in that promised blessedness. According to the amount of the ingrained wickedness of each will be computed the duration of his cure. The cure consists in the cleansing of his soul, and that cannot be achieved without an excruciating condition, as has been expounded in our previous discussion. But anyone would more fully comprehend the futility and irrelevancy of all these objections by trying to fathom the depths of our Apostle's wisdom. When explaining this mystery to the Corinthians, who perhaps themselves were bringing forward the same objections to it as its impugners today bring forward to overthrow our faith, he proceeds on his own authority to chide the audacity of their ignorance and speaks thus. You will say then to me, How are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? You fool! That which you sow is not quickened except it die, and that which you sow, you sow not that body that shall be, but bare grain, it may chance, of wheat or of some other grain. But God, gives it a body, as it has pleased him. In that passage, as it seems to me, he gags the mouths of men who display their ignorance of the fitting proportions in nature, and what, who measure the divine power by their own strength, and think that only so much is possible to God as the human understanding can take in. But that what is beyond it surpasses also the divine ability. For the man who had asked the apostle, How are the dead raised up? evidently implies that it is impossible when once the body's atoms have been scattered that they should again come in concourse together. And this being impossible, and no other possible form of body besides that arising from such a concourse, being left he, after the fashion of clever controversialists, concludes the truth of what he wants to prove by a species of syllogism. Thus, If a body is a concourse of atoms, and a second assemblage of these is impossible, what sort of body will those get who rise again? This conclusion involved seemingly in this artful contrivance of premises, the Apostle calls folly, as coming from men who failed to perceive in other parts of the creation the masterliness of the divine power. For omitting the sublimer miracles of God's hand, by which it would have been easy to place his hearer in a dilemma, for instance, he might have asked, how or whence comes a heavenly body, that of the sun, for example, or the moon, 
or that which is seen in the constellations? Whence comes the firmament, the air, water, the earth? He, on the contrary, convicts the objectors of inconsiderateness by means of objects which grow alongside us and are very familiar to all. Does not even husbandry teach you, he asks, that the man who in calculating the transcendent powers of the deity limits them by his own is a fool? Whence do seeds get the bodies that spring up from them? What precedes this springing up? Is it not a death which precedes? At least, if the dissolution of a compacted whole is a death, for indeed it cannot be supposed that the seed would spring up into a shoot unless it had been dissolved in the soil, and so become spongy and porous to such an extent as to mingle its own qualities with the adjacent moisture of the soil, and thus become transformed into a root and a shoot not stopping even there, but changing again into the stalk, with its intervening knee-joints that girded up like so many clasps, to enable it to carry with figure erect the ear with its load of grain. Where then were all these things belonging to grain, before its dissolution in the soil? And yet this result sprang from that grain, if that grain had not existed first, the ear of grain would not have arisen. Just then, as the body of the ear comes to light out of the seed, God's artistic touch of power producing it all out of that single thing, and just as it is neither entirely the same thing as that seed, nor something altogether different, so she insisted, by these miracles performed on seeds, you may now interpret the mystery of the resurrection. The divine power in the superabundance of omnipotence does not only restore you that body once dissolved, but makes great and splendid additions to it, whereby the human being is furnished in a manner more magnificent. It is sown, he says, in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. The grain of wheat, after its dissolution in the soil, leaves behind the slightness of its bulk and the peculiar quality of its shape. And yet it has not left and lost itself, but still, self-centered, grows into the ear. Though in many points it has made an advance upon itself, viz. in size, in splendor, in complexity, in form. In the same fashion, the human being deposits in death 
all those peculiar surroundings which it has acquired from passionate propensities. Dishonor, I mean, and corruption and weakness and characteristics of age. And yet the human being does not lose itself. It changes into an ear of grain, as it were, into incorruption, that is, and glory and honor and power and absolute perfection into a condition in which its life is no longer carried on in the ways peculiar to mere nature, but has passed into a spiritual and passionless existence. For it is the peculiarity of the natural body to be always moving on a stream, to be always altering from its state for the moment, and changing into something else. But none of these processes, which we observe not in man only, but also in plants and animals, will be found remaining in the life that shall be then. Further, it seems to me that the words of the Apostle, in every respect, harmonize with our own conception of the resurrection. They indicate the very same thing that we have embodied in our own definition of it, when, wherein we said that the resurrection is no other thing than the reconstitution of our nature in its original form. For whereas we learn from Scripture in the account of the first creation that first the earth brought forth the green herb, as the narrative says, and that then from this plant seed was yielded, from which when it was shed on the ground the same form of the original plant again sprang up. The Apostle, it is to be observed, declares that this very same thing happens in the resurrection also. And so we learn from him the fact, not only that our humanity will then be changed into something nobler, but also that what we have therein to expect is nothing else than that which was at the beginning. In the beginning, we see, it was not an ear rising from a grain, but a grain coming from an ear. And after that, the ear grows round the grain. And so the order indicated in this similitude clearly shows that all that blessed state which arises for us by means of the resurrection is only a return to our pristine state of grace. We, too, were once, in a fashion, a full ear, in fact. But the burning heat of sin withered us up. And then, on our dissolution by death, the earth received us. But, in the spring of the resurrection, she will reproduce the, this naked grain of our body in the form of an ear of grain, tall, well-proportioned and erect, reaching to the heights of heaven and, for blade and beard, resplendent in incorruption, and with all the other godlike marks. For this corruptible must put on incorruptible. And this incorruption and glory and honor and power are those distinct and acknowledged marks of deity which once belonged to him who was created in God's image, and which we hope for hereafter. 
the first man Adam, that is, was the first ear of grain. But with the arrival of evil human nature was diminished into a mere multitude. And as happens to the grain on the ear, each individual man was denuded of the beauty of that primal ear, and moldered in the soil. But in the resurrection we are born again in our original splendor, only instead of that single primitive ear we become the countless myriads of ears in the wheat fields. The virtuous life, as contrasted with that of vice, is distinguished thus. Those who while living have by virtuous conduct exercised husbandry, agriculture on themselves, are at once revealed in all the qualities of a perfect ear of grain, while those whose bare grain, that is, the forces of their natural soul, has become through evil habits, degenerate, as it were, and hardened by the weather. As the seeds they call hornstruck, according to the experts in such things, grow up, will, though they live again in the resurrection, experience very great severity from the judge because they do not possess the strength to shoot up into the full proportions of an ear of grain, and thereby become that which we were before our earthly fall. The remedy offered by the overseer of the produce is to collect together the tares and the thorns which have grown up with the good seed, and into whose bastard life all the secret forces that once nourished its root have passed, so that it not only has had to remain without its nutriment, but has been choked and so rendered unproductive by this unnatural growth. When from the nutritive part within them, everything that is the reverse or the counterfeit of it has been picked out and has been committed to the fire that consumes everything unnatural, and so has disappeared. Then, in this class also, their humanity will thrive, and will ripen into fruit-bearing, owing to such husbandry. And some day, after long courses of ages, will get back again that universal form which God stamped upon us at the beginning. Blessed are they, indeed, in whom the full beauty of those ears shall be developed directly they are born in the resurrection. Yet we say this without implying that any merely bodily distinctions will be manifest between those who have lived virtuously and those who have lived full of vice in this life, as if we ought to think that one will be imperfect as regards his material frame, while another will win perfection regarding it. The prisoner and the free, here in this present world, are just alike as regards the constitutions of their two bodies, though as regards enjoyment and suffering, the gulf is wide between them. 
In this way, I take it, should we reckon the difference between the good and bad in that intervening time. For the perfection of bodies that rise from that sowing of death is, as the Apostle tells us, to consist in incorruption and glory and honor and power. But any diminution in such excellences does not denote a corresponding bodily mutilation of him who has risen again, but a withdrawal and an estrangement from each one of those things which are conceived of as belonging to the good. Seeing, then, that one or the other of these two diametrically opposed ideas, I mean, good and evil, must anyway attach to us, it is clear that to say a man is not included in the good is a necessary demonstration that he is included in the evil. But then, in connection with evil, we find no honor, no glory, no incorruption, no power. And so we are forced to dismiss all doubt that a man who has nothing to do with these last-mentioned things must be connected with their opposites, viz. with weakness, with dishonor, with corruption, with everything of that nature, such as we spoke of in the previous parts of the discussion, when we said how many were the passions sprung from evil, which are so hard for the soul to get rid of, when they have infused themselves into the very substance of the soul's entire nature and become one with it. When such, then, have been purged from it and utterly removed by the healing processes worked out by the fire, then every one of the things which make up our conception of the good will come to take their place. Incorruption, that is, and life, and honor, and grace, and glory, and everything else that we conjecture is to be seen in God and in his image. Man, as he was made. End of Part 12 of On the Soul and the Resurrection End of On the Soul and the Resurrection by St. Gregory of Nyssa.